0: And joining us is David Valentin. He is the vice president of Main Street Research. David, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Don. Roy. So uh, prior to the move to reduce the billing for monthly hydro in Ontario by a total of 25%, which caused the province to reamortize its debt, costing taxpayers, as I said, well in excess of an additional billion dollars in interest payments, Kathleen Wynne seemed doomed to exiting the premier's office next year. But your polling, if I understand it correctly, at Main Street Research, suggests that post-hydro bills reduction has made an impact on voters. Uh, undecided numbers are up to, I think, 8% now. What, what, what can you share with us about what voters had to say about Wynne and her electability, given the changes made in hydro billing?
1: Well, it's important to put this in context. For the last few years, the numbers have been abysmal for the Ontario Liberals, and Kathleen Wynne in particular, Our polls have had her approval rating as low as 15%. So we've been seeing a consistent pattern of voters very unhappy with this Liberal government. And obviously, so many stories have been shared about hydro prices, whether or not people are able to afford uh, these packages. And in some cases, people finding out their electricity has been cut off in winter because they can't afford the bills. So it's important to know that there's been so much anger. And now this hydro plan has come in. It's a 25% reduction that starts in July going to cost the taxpayers 25 billion dollars over 30 years that's a lot of new money that we're going to have to spend to to pay for these extended almost sort of mortgage payments and the effect that we're seeing right now is an increase of 8 percent in the undecided voters so that's actually quite good for the premier it doesn't mean that these people are now going to vote Liberal, but at least they're considering her party again. And mm-hmm. the last two years of polling, that's an improvement.
0: And 47% support the Liberals' decision on hydro. That must play a, a part in this whole equation.
1: That's right. And I mean, I think we have to remember, and we asked this question as well, we asked people if they thought the hydro plan was enacted to gain votes or whether it was enacted out of a sincere desire to help Ontarians. Forty-one uh, percent of Ontarians told us that they thought this was done for political purposes, and many of those same Ontarians told us they like the plan. And, and you can like something and still think it's done for the wrong reasons. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, a lot of people supposedly are going to be seeing uh, an average reduction of twenty-five percent starting in July, and, mm-hmm. and they would like to see that reduction. A lot of people having trouble making ends meet.
0: No, oh, definitely. I mean, more than trouble—more uh, than trouble making ends meet—they're finding it impossible, and so they—they they were had their electricity. Turned off, but I'm curious here if the numbers can be affected so quickly by one questionable move by the premier, as in uh, dropping the uh, the immediate cost of the hydro bill and extending the uh, the actual reamortization over 30 30 years and making it far more expensive. But if if the numbers can be affected so quickly by one move by the premier, does that suggest her poor numbers in the past have been soft? And does it suggest that somehow, with many voters, she continues to have appeal? Or, David, does it suggest the PCs and Patrick Brown and the NDP with Andrea Horwath have failed to maximize on an opportunity?
1: Well, I think the PCs have really failed to present a hydro plan. And we've been hearing about this for the last two weeks, that the PC party has not put forward their own vision of hydro solutions for Ontario. The NDP has put a plan forward, and and it's been received in many different ways by different people, But we are seeing that the NDP is performing better on the hydro question than they are on how many people are going to vote for them. So their plan is actually having a positive effect on their brand. We're seeing the opposite effect for the progressive conservatives with lots of progressive conservative voters telling us that the progressive conservatives don't have the best plan for hydro. So that's obviously going to be a problem for Patrick Brown moving forward. He's going to want to announce something sooner rather than later. I think what we're going to find out in the summer, around July, August, September, is whether or not this plan has any legs. Just because the undecided rate has gone up right now doesn't mean it's going to stay that way. You might be happy now that you're hearing about this cut, but maybe July rolls around and you didn't get 25%. Maybe you only got 15, maybe you only got 20. It was less than what you thought. Or maybe the government does something else that makes you upset. I think we really have to watch the trend and see if if Kathleen Wynne can keep positive numbers and positive momentum into September. And if she can, then I think it becomes a very different election next year Mm -hmm. because Kathleen Wynne's going to put as much focus as she can onto the labour reforms that she might be bringing in, uh, onto the free tuition for low-income earners that begins in September. Lots of other different policy uh, platforms she can talk about, but lots of other problems she's going to face. And I think if you look at what's happening with Ontario's doctors right now, there is a labor uh, crisis in the making, right there and then. So if they could mismanage that file even further, and who knows what the consequences of that might be?
0: Yeah. And voters' memories are sometimes uh, not as long as we assure ourselves they're going to be two or three years out from an election. When election time rolls around, you look at the most recent developments, and if they seem favorable, then the person who delivered those developments probably has a more favorable position to, to, to try to sell. Mr. Brown now has really let an opportunity bypass him because the liberals will be able to say, well, we reduced the price of hydro by 25%. Regardless of what he does, they'll be able, and they will, they'll come back and they'll say, we reduced the price of hydro monthly, uh, month by month by 25%. That'll be their message. and. In many ways, Patrick Brown's message, whatever it may be, is going to be sort of a counter-argument instead of one that that, that really led the day.
1: Well, and I think that he really missed an opportunity not putting forward a plan uh, to lower rates, either by 25% or 30% or whatever percent he wanted to lower it. If if he had put a plan forward at the beginning, then he might have been able to say, well, look, they only did it because we put our plan forward and they copied this or they copied that. I, I really do think he should have announced something even if it wasn't perfect, there's never going to be a perfect hydro plan. There's always going to be uh, something undesirable because we have to pay for it somehow. Uh, hydro isn't free, and the, and the infrastructure uh, that delivers the hydro across the province isn't free. So there's always going to be some sort of cost, whether the, go- the government picks it up or whether the consumer picks it up is the big question.
0: Yeah, David, never let the opponent uh, get the high ground. Particularly if you if you've owned the high ground, as it were, or seem to have owned the high ground, don't let the opponent take it away from you. That's exactly right. And in this case, it looks as though Mr. Brown has certainly done that. Now, if all the cards fall, the way Kathleen Wynne wants them to fall or is planning for them to fall, does she, in just over a year's time, have an opportunity to return as Premier for the province of Ontario?
1: I think there's always an opportunity. And one thing we've learned from the Progressive Conservative Party is they have a bad habit of seeing and doing things during election campaigns that are very unhelpful to them. You only have to look at the last election to see how Tim Hudak was really doing well in the polls. And then he started talking about cutting 100,000 jobs. And that was the end of that. The rest of the campaign was really just fought on that uh, that platform plank. and, And obviously we saw the results. So there's always a question about what the progressive Conservative Party will do. But there should be a question as well as to what missteps that the Premier and her party might make from mm-hmm. now until the election campaign. Mm-hmm. Lots of different things that, that could come back to harm them. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not as optimistic at this particular point because one place the numbers haven't really changed is the greater Toronto area. So the Premier will be doing better in, in, in Ottawa. She'll be doing better uh, in city centres like London and Waterloo and Kitchener. And even in Toronto itself, it looks like she's doing a little better. But because we haven't seen as much movement in a nine oh five, where there's lots of important seats, Mississauga and Brampton, Ajax and Pickering, um, I wouldn't be as optimistic right now, but she's definitely headed in the right direction, if she yeah. can keep this up.
0: David, thank you for the time. Good talking to you. Thanks for having me. David uh, Valentin from Main Street Research.
2: You're listening to the Roy Green Show. Weekends from two to five on AM nine hundred CHML.
0: You know, I have to. Uh, I have to tell you. This is uh, just extremely disappointing and uh, doesn't. He's called it. Talk to me, please. He's Kevin's on the line. Okay, so now we have Kevin O'Leary on the line. All right, Mr. O'Leary, how are you?
3: Very good, thank you.
0: Uh, we've just been treading water for about 10 minutes waiting for you.
3: Oh, yeah. I was at a campaign event with students at Carlton. It ran late.
0: I'm sorry about that. Yeah, uh, let's get, just get into a couple of issues with you quickly that uh, that, that are going to matter. You uh, you challenged the Conservative Party on the way that some individuals were being registered as party members with uh, untraceable credit cards. That was not going to augur well for you. Turned out that you were correct. Some 1,351 individuals. What does that mean to your campaign, and what does that say about the party and the and, and the people in the party?
3: I think we're all, as as candidates, going to set politics aside on this issue because we as a party and as a leadership race in progress need everybody to know in Canada, in every party and those watching Canada from the outside, that this race is built on the pillar of integrity. There is no tolerance, zero tolerance for fraudulent upbringing, zero. And so we have now gone through this process to look through the list. We found these errors or these fraudulent votes, or whatever you want to call them. What we need now is to know with certainty is the list is finalized on the 28th of this month that every single name is clean. That is paramount for everybody. You do not want to start the mandate of the new leader, whoever he or she is, over the taint of fraud.
0: Do you get a feeling there's an effort to stack the deck against you?
3: No, not at all. I think this is an unusual race. It's unprecedented in Canadian history. We've never had in any party, in any political contest, an ending where there's 14 candidates still in the race. So that causes certain stresses, because really what's going on in a leadership race in any political arena, it's a form of civil war. And, of course, when it's over, the party has to convalesce around the new leader, and that'll happen in a matter of weeks. But we have to make sure it is not tainted by this fact that there were fraudulent voters in that list they have to be called now and the big concern for all of us and i think we can put politics aside when i say this and i believe that every candidate feels the same way and the party does is when the final list is created the evening of the 28th the party goes through an audit process to assure everybody involved and everybody watching that every single name is valid
0: Okay. Let's move on to some of the issues that matter to Canadians that we've been talking about on this program, and we've had a tremendous amount of response to. Let me start with the Motion 103, M103, Islamophobia. Where do you stand on that?
3: I think it's a very weak idea to put this forward and single out a single ethnic race or religion, a huge mistake. We cover this as Canadians and always have. It's in our social fabric. We... we, I don't care what religion you are or what where you come from or, or, or what your ethnic background is. You're a Canadian to me and to every other Canadian. Why we would, would single out one seems unfair to them and to the rest of religions in Canada. What about the Catholics? What about the Anglicans? What about the Jews? What about everybody else? Why, why are we singling one out? I don't understand it. I think it's a very weak motion. Do
0: you think there's an agenda at play?
3: You know, whatever it is, it's, in my view, a mistake. And I think it should be dropped because I think it's causing a lot of discomfort with everyday Canadians. You know, sometimes governments make mistakes. This is one of them.
0: What would you do about the migrant issue at the border? We're now hearing news story after news story, headline after headline, almost keeping a running count of the numbers of people who are entering Canada from the United States on the ground between the border crossings. Uh, circumventing the safe third country uh, agreement. What would you do, what would your reflexive instinct be to do about that?
3: Well, we have two options, which Trudeau has done neither. In fact, he made a huge mistake last December. He he took away the visa requirement for Mexicans, and all of a sudden, as Trump has put pressure on illegal Mexicans in the U.S., we have a new migration coming into Canada. I am not against immigration. I, how can I be? I'm an immigrant. I'm an Irish, uh, Irish Lebanese. And so... What we need to do is is stop this because it's unfair to the people that are trying to enter the country legally. The loophole in the law has to be closed by Trudeau. Think about this. The The law says if you come into a port of entry and the officer asks you, are you in an immigration or refugee status process in the U.S., and you answer yes, we turn you back. Why is it they can walk in the border without even any papers and then jump the queue for the people they're trying to get in legally? And what's worse, and so unfair to Canadians, they actually get better health care status than the Canadian does. They tap into our welfare system, and they play the game of going through seven different applications before they're rejected in the refugee status, hire a lawyer, and play the game for another seven years at a cost of $500,000 per person to Canadian taxpayers. Of course I'm against it. So are most rational Canadians. It's unfair. Trudeau has made a huge mistake on this, and he should fix it. What would you do? He's a, weak leader, he's a weak leader, and he won't do it. What would you do? I would immediately, at this point, go back to the U.S. and say, look, we've got a problem, and the reason you should care, Homeland Security came up here, and actually, i got I got I to gotta answer it this way. The, the minister of public safety, Ralph Goodale, was asked a specific question last Saturday by... Oh. Solomon, and he came back, and there must be some kind of a disease you get in Ottawa if you're a politician long enough, because he spun an answer for eight minutes and said nothing. What I would do is go back to Homeland Security and say, look, we've got to modify this. We have to apply the same rules we apply at the border of entry to the entire 49th parallel. If people come across the border and we ask them specifically, are they in a refugee status, we're turning them back to you as we would in every port of entry. Do you agree yes or no? If they don't, we have to take matters into our own hands. We either have a border or we don't. But I think our American friends have the same problem we have. They don't want to see it in reverse. They don't want to see people crossing the Canadian border into the U.S. We don't want either way. We want a border. We want to process a border with a legitimate claim. That's who we are as Canadians. This is a migration occurring, and this is the winter time. Those images of people crossing frozen rivers with their children, it's so unsafe, so unfair. They're being encouraged by lawyers to do this, to breach the law and take advantage of the loophole. It's a big mistake. We've got to fix it as Canadians. Out of respect for the people that are trying to come into the country legally, that's what matters.
0: I have about 60 seconds left. Canada's military is going to review its uniforms, its badges, its music, its ceremonies to ensure that the CAF are welcoming to women and to minorities. That's getting a lot of attention. It's something I'm going to be speaking to directly on the program uh, later on uh, today and tomorrow. What do you make of that? Uh, About 30 seconds for an answer.
3: I have to respect the institutions. I mean, think about it. The military has been proud for a, a long time. They build their own institutions. If they want to modify them, that's their business. And we as Canadians have to respect them. 100%, because they serve and take the ultimate risk for the safety of our country. If they want to modify that, in my view, it's their purvey, it's their decision, it's in their great honor and long tradition that they would do this. And I'm sure they're going to make a careful consideration of it, because they respect that history.
0: Uh, You can't do things just for politically correct considerations with the military, because that's an entirely different organization with an entirely different role
3: but we have to respect their wishes. We
0: no, I understand. I Absolutely, understand that. But are there their wishes? See, we've run out of time. Is that their wishes or is it the wishes of the government? We'll talk again, Mr. O'Leary. Thanks for the time.
2: Take care.
0: Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
2: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: But let's start with this story. Alberta's progressive conservatives choose their new party leader today. Jason Kenney is the favorite. But then what? A P.C. Wildrose merger and a unified right taking on the NDP and the, Liber- and the Liberals in 2019. John Himpe joins us from Calgary, Chorus Radio reporter. He's at the convention, the leadership convention for the progressive conservatives. John, thank you for the time. It's it's one ballot uh, down from what I understand. And uh, Jason Kenny, is he expected to win on one ballot or could this go longer?
4: Well, I mean, you, you look at the room, Roy, and... I would, you know, I'd be hard-pressed to say that um, anybody else's supporters outnumber Jason Kenney's. Uh You know, he, his team has been handing out white, white cowboy hats, blue ball caps, blue t-shirts, and it's a sea of those here at, uh, at the TELUS Convention Center today. And so, I mean, I would, you know, just anecdotally, it would be, I'd be really surprised if Jason Kenny doesn't get this on the first down. Now, we understand
0: that this is a delegated convention, not the one-member, one-vote format of the past. What does that mean Exactly.
4: So 1,700 delegates from across the province uh, are here and are going to be casting ballots. Uh, basically at every constituency association, they had uh, delegate meetings and delegates were elected and they weren't necessarily committed. This is not exactly kind of like, you know, this U.S. system of, of delegates, I guess. But, you know, they don't have to necessarily pledge their affiliation. But, um, you know, quite a few of them, the Kenny campaign has been saying through this whole thing, uh, you know, the delegates that were elected last night, you know, 9 out of 10 or 10 out of 10 are, are, are for us. And so going into this, Kenny's campaign has been saying somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 percent of delegates um, they feel are committed to them, but there's no real official committing process through this thing. All
0: right. John, not so long ago, if Jason Kenny were to win the leadership of the Conservative progressive conservative party of Alberta, that would simply have meant that he was going to be almost by default the next premier of the province, but today, 2017, what does the Jason Kenney victory mean with the split uh, in the political right between the, the PCs and Wildrose? And, uh, and, of course, there's also the increasing strength, from what I understand, from the demographics in the province of Alberta, increasing strength certainly of the NDP, your government at the moment, and the Liberals as well.
4: Well, I, I think the days of, of getting the PC domination being a coronation are over in this province. And we saw, you know, with the Wild Rose emerging and the PCs being decimated to third-party status in the last election, uh, that times are changing. And now we're, we're in a position where um, this could very well be the last PC leadership convention because uh, Jason Kenney has made it very apparent that he wants to see both the Wild Rose and the PCs unite. Uh, under one conservative banner notice the word progressive is gone from there right. that that leaves people like Richard Starkey who uh, is also running for the leadership a little on the disaffected side saying look there this is the the word progressive is important uh, actually in his speech today Starkey referenced some of the gaps that the Wild Rose party has en- endured over the last number of months and uh, says you know is that what we want to identify with what you know when if we wake up to that is that what we want and a uh, To complicate all of this, there is no process in Alberta that allows for a merger of parties. And so uh, this is a delicate dancing act between Brian Jean, the the leader of the Wild Rose, and and Jason Kenney, if he is the successful leader, because what's going to end up happening here is that um, there could very well be a third party that emerges because you can't take your assets with you, you can't really dissolve your party. They just kind of go dormant, is is, is the best way to put it, is how Alberta law is written and how the PC Constitution is written right now.
0: Has Jason Kenny addressed any of this in the in you know today since you've been there or is he keeping a fairly low profile?
4: Jason Jason Kenny is on message. I mean, you know there's something to be said about this Kenny campaign. Um, it started yesterday afternoon actually when Kenny rolled up outside the convention center in a highly stage managed affair in this truck that he's been going across the province and and meeting with Albertans and and uh, it started there. Uh, you know moments before he comes out on uh, Uh, into the convention hall you have people handing out t-shirts and placards um you know so it's highly stage managed when it comes to kenny himself he's on message you know i listened to him and he spoke last night the message has not changed from the first time i saw him back in january i just moved to calgary here in january and and so i've been following this since i got here i'll tell you i mean every every time i've seen kenny the message has been the same uh, unite the right. Uh, let's defeat the NDP and bring back the Alberta advantage. Uh, that's pretty much the Kenny campaign in a nutshell, and he's he's pretty much out there saying that uh, same thing over and over and over again.
0: Yeah. One more question for you, John. If the convention were to require more than one ballot to decide the leader of the Progressive Conservatives, how significant would that be? Assuming it's going to be Jason Kenny. But if it takes more I, than one ballot, how significant would that be to Kenny?
4: Um. You know. I think. It might say something about how may, how strong maybe there is of a desire to, to retain that progressive part of progressive conservative. I mean, Jason ketty has been talking about a Big Ten conservative party, but there are people here. I, you know, I'll, I'll relay a very quick story. I was downstairs grabbing a sandwich yesterday. A lady who has nothing to do with the convention said to somebody who's attending it, what's going on? And he said, well, a guy from down east wants to take over the party and, and destroy it, and we're trying to stop that from happening. That kind of attitude tells me from at least one of the attendees that, you know, I think probably there's a desire to, if, if this party's going to go further to the right, there may be a gap for somebody to come up the middle after all this is said and done.
0: Hey, John, thank you for the time. We'll keep a close eye on what's going on at the convention, the leadership convention for the Progressive Conservative Party for now, with Jason Kenney uh, being likely the odds-on favorite to come out as the leader of the PC's. And where we go from there, we'll find out. Thank you, John.
4: Thanks,
0: Roy. John Himpe from Chorus Alberta.
2: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: He's 22 years of age. His uh, name is Karim Baratov. He's uh, Canadian of Kazakh uh, origin. And he's one of three men charged with a huge Yahoo data breach. Some half a billion accounts were breached. Baratov hails from Ancaster, Ontario, part of the city of Hamilton, where he lived quite the life, we're told. Very nice house, bought and paid for, head-turning sports cars, big and noisy parties, perfect life for a 22-year-old with lots of money, except for the Yahoo data breach. And hacker for hire is how the FBI, thinks the FBI, said that they describe him, and they'd certainly have concerns about him being a possible flight risk. His lawyers in Canada have said they're definitely going to try for bail. Uh, Ross McLean joins me, former Toronto police officer, bodyguard, and security experts, international security expert Ross McLean, security in Toronto. Ross, this uh, this story has a lot of component parts. It it's almost like um, it's almost like um, a, a television series, or maybe a, a segment from Homeland.
5: Yeah, I, I think that a modern Ian Fleming might have written this as sort of a yeah. James Bond issue here. There, and you're right. There are multiple layers to this, and I think we're just starting to unravel it, uh, Roy.
0: So what happens now? How, do, how does this take place? How do we get to the point where a 22-year-old is arrested for um, being a hacker for hire? And uh, how does how does it happen that you get engaged, involved with two Russian uh, secret agents at least that's the allegation, that's the charge. How does this all come together and then police getting involved? How do we get to the point where the 22-year-old's arrested?
5: Yeah, well, actually, it can develop quite quickly and quite easily. I I, I worked for a company before, an international company that did technology distribution, and we had hackers uh, from Romania who were working to defraud our company of millions of dollars. And, and what they would do, Roy, is they would contact uh youths teenagers in chat rooms they talk to them they'd befriend them they'd say look at you know there's some technology we want here but we can't have it shipped right to romania because it's illegal so look we're going to order two or three laptops you can keep one if when they show up you could just redirect the other laptops to us that would be great and they would go through this and they this would happen to all sorts of kids we we busted one kid in the basement of his house here in a suburb outside of toronto He's 15 years old, and he had about $45,000 of brand-new technology equipment wow. in the basement. And the parents, uh, we asked them, well, what do you think about this? And, oh, we didn't know. We don't know what this is worth. So it can happen that quickly.
0: This is the new, uh, almost the new formula, isn't it, for the, you look for the person who's living very a very affluent lifestyle, and what could they possibly be doing? Maybe some older people would keep a lower profile, but for a 22-year-old, it's, you gotta live. But what surprises me is that, All of this was taking place, and from what we understand, at least so far, there didn't seem to be anything in the way of a really significant, not necessarily police investigation, but police attention to somebody that young living that well.
5: Yeah, it's interesting. Canada actually has a whole organization called FinTrack, F-I-N-T-R-A-C. It's a whole organization that's designed to look for people who are either uh, laundering money, getting money from the proceeds of crime, human trafficking, or even terrorist financing. And it's supposed to work with all of the banks, all of the securities dealers, uh, loans officers, uh, money transfer people. If they see what are suspicious amounts of money being transferred or used, or you can't justify how you've made the money they have obligations to report it to this group uh, and they start investigating although they'll even say on their own webpage that it takes them quite a while to do these investigations so it's interesting if no flags were raised uh... in which case how was this young man being educated so much that he could defeat uh... very surveillance the country's put on to detect this sort of well
0: propaganda. exactly and, and you know ross somebody sent me an email And uh, and and brought up this point about about him having had this life to live without apparently being investigated. And the point made in the email was, you don't know if he was actually being investigated long before the arrest took place. But if he was being investigated long before the arrest took place, the investigation likely would have been taking place while the half. I'm just speculating here, but the half billion uh, uh, bits of data or Yahoo accounts were being allegedly compromised. So it would seem to me the police would have acted a lot sooner had they known sooner rather than wait until a half a billion accounts have allegedly been, been hacked and then move in.
5: Yeah, well, that will be some of the questions about how this how this happens. And, you know, I have to tell you, when you read the indictment, you can read the indictment online. It's posted. Uh, they talk about how much uh, Yahoo was compromised and, and the the tools that these people had to do the hacking were just unbelievable, Roy. Just unbelievable what they could get into and get around after they had hacked Yahoo. And apparently what this one young man had done, the one from lancaster is he apparently, allegedly anyways, hacked Yahoo's mail servers uh, or ad servers so that they would only sell present ads to viewers that would go to an erectile dysfunction sales company that paid huge dollars for every click and buy. And that money was directed to him. So how much money he has, where the money is, we don't know any of that yet. But the uh, Justice Department is going after his PayPal account for whatever banks that may be linked to.
0: Yeah. Uh, one, of the, one of the stories as well is that he was asked to, allegedly, asked to take care of or, or look at or, or hack 80 specific accounts from within that half a million or half a billion uh, Yahoo accounts. Again, this, a lot of this is just, it's news piling on top of news as we find out more and more. Um, so so what, what happens now? Is extradition to the United States almost automatic in a situation like this?
5: Well, apparently he's got a very expensive lawyer. I, I saw it now. <laughs> Once again, I, I, I'm not too sure about this, but I saw somebody had tweeted a picture that uh, apparently says that the lawyer's Rolls Royce was parked illegally in front of the courthouse. <laughs> that was defending him to work on him, and he's trying to get him bail, uh, but of course they don't want to offer bail. And there's extradition, which always takes time, especially if you have money uh, to be able to fight extradition. You can certainly drag it out for a long time. So I think we're at the very tip of the iceberg about finding out what's been going on here.
0: Yeah, I mean, what interests you most about about this about these developments, Ross? What what piques your interest?
5: Well, I I read, as I said, I read the techniques that they were able to put in there that they used to be able to hack and get into people, and it was just outstanding and even scary to me, and I know a bit about it. Uh, Roy, they apparently, once they were able to get into Yahoo, they learned how to mint what are called cookies. You know whenever you go to a website and it says, we're going to download cookies for you to accept these cookies? Yes. Well, what they did was they could fake those cookies, remake them to your account, so just like when you go back and you go back to log into your bank account, the cookies come on, oh, you're already logged in, and it allows you access. They were they were creating these fake cookies and able to gain access into people's financial accounts, personal emails. I mean, you name the accounts you have online, they were able to get in there, and that's just a little bit scary.
0: Yeah, it is, and I imagine there are many people out of those half a billion accounts, individuals who would probably not even remember that they had an, a Yahoo account or have a Yahoo account that is, that is still active.
5: And you're absolutely right. And that's one of the things people need to do is go back and look at all their old accounts. If they don't have them, delete them, change the passwords on them. You know, one of the problems is there, you may have an old account where it says, what was your first public school and the name of your dog? And you answered those security questions on there, and they're still hanging out there and you may still use those answers for other accounts yeah, so it yeah. makes you easier to hack. Yeah. So it's it's you really have to be on top of your game these days based on looking at what this guy was able to do.
0: When I was a kid there was a TV series called Have Gun Will Travel. And it was a it was a a, a gunfighter and he would hand out his card um, to people who needed help perhaps. And so he had his six-shooter and it was Have Gun Will Travel. So he would go wherever it was necessary to take care of the business that you needed taken care of. In today's world, it's have laptop, don't need to travel.
5: Absolutely. And it seems that the guns, the tools that you can get to break into this are available on the net. We saw that the WikiLeaks uh, showed how much of it was out on the Internet. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the question is whether our, our tech companies are doing enough to right. update and keep the system secure for us. So you better be careful. Yep.
0: Yeah, I thank you so much for the time. As always, Ross McLean, we'll talk again. Thanks, Ross.
5: Thank you, Roy.
0: Ross McLean Security.
2: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: David Fraser is a partner at McInnes Cooper in Halifax he is one of the uh, world's foremost internet privacy lawyers and he's the founder of the Canadian privacy law blog and he joins us on the Roy Green show on the Chorus Radio Network david the, the stories that we covered today in 2017 when i compare them to things we talked about 5 or 6 years ago on the program it's just changed dramatically there's a, there's an air of uh, of almost casual sophistication about what's going on
6: oh i think so and, and certainly one can readily notice a theme in a number of uh, kind of hacking related uh, things that have found their way into the headlines over the last, let's say, six to 10 months. You've heard all the stuff out of the United States about alleged Russian hacking of the election, the leaks to WikiLeaks of Democratic emails, all of which seems to fit within a, a, a bit of a theme and a consistent theme at that, which is that um, kind of what has often been the same resources that are devoted to kind of cybersecurity, to keeping our information safe, has now become weaponized and is being turned against. And so, kind of offensive cyber warfare. And it's all, it, it's not your conventional sort of warfare, it's all covert or attempts to keep it covert. In fact, that's how it remains or retains its effectiveness. And I guess in a way that a whole lot of uh, military action, conventional military action, has been outsourced to mercenaries and contractors, it should be even less surprising that in the cyber arena that this is happening uh, on a very significant scale. Certainly, there's, we've heard stories about anonymous for quite some time and, and uh, uh, groups of individuals who have you know, computer skills Uh, bringing themselves together and kind of somewhat spontaneously in the anonymous movement. Uh, But there are loads of people out there with, uh, with a particular set of skills to paraphrase a a particular movie um, who are, some of them are doing it for the lulls as it's called, but others might be available to do it for, uh, to do it for pay. And when there are significant returns to be gained from it, political uh, or otherwise blackmail, as, uh, as has been alleged in a number of cases, um, that there's a lot of money available to hire these individuals who have these skills in order to act on behalf of, uh, probably in some cases, organizations that they have no idea who they are, but there's, they've simply been asked to do something, don't have particular scruples, and are, much, and are very willing to accept the Bitcoin or, or the other form of, uh, of payment that might come along with it.
0: Are we seeing the tip of the iceberg, do you think, or are we seeing sort of the belly of the beast?
6: It's it's hard to say. Certainly, it, it seems to be part of a trend, but whether it's a trend that's going to diminish over time, I'm I'm not sure. I think that we're we are going to see some very significant um, I think incentives that will be built in or imposed on technology companies to ensure the security of their user information. But at the same time, there is a, a significant amount of um, Steps that individual users can take to protect their their information. Certainly, your information is, well, it's a bit of a cliché, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And in a lot of cases, the user is is the weakest link. But in other cases, if the organization has not paid sufficient attention to security or has started to decline in its attention to security, which I've certainly seen suggestions that, kind of as Yahoo has gone through a general decline in malaise, that perhaps they they weren't on top of the ball as other organizations uh, that are kind of still on the upswing have. Um, And certainly people go, (laughs) what's another cliche, and I hate to be resorting to so many cliches, but kind of when you ask a bank robber why they robbed the banks, they say, well, that's where the money is. That's where the money is. Um, Increasingly, more and more of our information is in the hands of third parties, of companies. We use cloud email services all the time that's that standard I, I don't know anybody other than corporations that kind of host their own personal email or that or that do those sorts of things and and there's a, just a massive amount of information that is essentially centralized in these enormous repositories which are yahoo and and microsoft for hotmail and google for gmail and and other other providers so of course if you're if you're able to compromise any one of those systems, you're, you potentially have access to a huge amount of of, uh, of resources.
0: So the me- the metaphor might be the internet is a huge building, and in that huge building there are significant numbers of doors and windows that are open.
6: Well, that's right, that's right, and, and there's also, you can also almost think of it in terms of a, a safety deposit box vault, where uh, there are a whole lot of safety deposit boxes that are very easily picked mm-hmm. that people who choose bad passwords or people who use the same password across multiple services so if you're if one account is compromised you 're using the same username and password on other services all of a sudden that the whole other system is compromised but of course if if somebody leaves the vault door open, somebody with a drill can go in and there and, and get access um, and somebody who actually has the the keys to the bank, um, is able to covertly get in, in there. So there are multiple layers of, of security. Um, and many of the attacks that we've seen, so the one against the, the Democratic National Committee in the United States, seemed to have been a pretty conventional sort of phishing attack where somebody's password was intercepted. And that's a, that happens to a lot of people, and that's, that's a sort of attack that's actually levied against ordinary people, the sort of uh, kind of scam emails that you get. And those can be essentially extinguished by using something called two-factor authentication, where if somebody has your username and password, in fact, there's another element that's required in order to get into that account. So even if somebody gets that information, they're not actually going to get in. But it's certainly that's available on a lot of systems. Microsoft and, and Twitter and Facebook and, and others, Gmail certainly make that available. But it's incumbent upon the user to choose to do that. But when your personal information crown jewels are in that safety deposit box, you do have access to our more robust lock, and I think users really should take advantage
2: of that. Yeah, You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: David, who had any idea that Yahoo still had half a billion accounts?
6: <laughs> well, I think, I, although that's a funny question perhaps a little bit facetious, it's I mean, certainly, it's a valid question. Yahoo was one of the first of the Internet giants. Uh, but it was uh, eclipsed by a number of other services. And so there's probably a whole bunch of people who have Yahoo accounts. Uh, and I think your, your previous guest kind of referred to this. There are probably a whole lot of people who have Yahoo accounts and don't even realize it. Mm-hmm. And certainly, um, some services will shut down accounts after a period of inactivity. I don't think Yahoo is one of them. And so uh, there may be a whole bunch of really dormant, old stale information that, that might have been accessed. But at the same time, that, that information, uh, I know I was a Yahoo, was one of my first email accounts outside of a, outside of a university system, and it's, my account is, is still active. And I have updated the password since I've heard about these, uh, these breaches. But if you go back and you look through those email messages, there's still sensitive personal information in there. And so I think people should, from time to time, do a bit of an inventory and think of all the accounts that they might have set up, and particularly I think the ones that are most uh, ones that are most sensitive would be an, an email account or anything else like that. Particularly if there's sensitive information in there, if there's information related to banking or financial things or of of any kind, things about relationships, uh, things also information that could lead to other accounts, which actually leads me to. Another point, which is a, I think a very important one for, for kind of personal information security, is that often we have we've set up other email accounts as the places for what's called account recovery. So if I forget my email address for a particular account, often you can kind of go through the process and have your email or you have your your password reset, and they'll send a reset link to the email account that's associated with that. And so, for example, it might be a Yahoo account, which means that anybody who has access to your Yahoo account or for whatever system that that, that would be has the ability to actually reset your passwords on other services, which might, in fact, include financial services and, and banking and things like that. And the contents of that email inbox might have the answer to those secret questions for those services that, uh, that use them. So we really should be mindful of kind of where... <laughs> It, it, where our information is at any any particular time and where our vulnerabilities are and i think one challenge that that simply exists across the board in this uh, in this arena is that you're dealing with a relatively technical complicated uh system that you know a whole lot of people don't have the time or the inclination or the technical ability to to keep on top of but it really does behoove us i think to take the time to think about these sorts of things and to act upon them and and there, some systems have a mechanism where you can kind of export all your data and then shut down your account. And, uh, and if you're not using that account anymore, that's probably in your best interest to, to do that.
0: Yeah. It's uh, it's interesting to point out as well that as the years go on, sometimes just months, the technology just becomes better and better and better and is capable of doing things that technology was not able to pr- provide maybe a year previous or two years previous. And that makes material and information that you consider to be particularly safe, not so safe any longer, and really uh, extraordinarily so if you don't use the account uh, any longer. Because I think we have the mindset we don't use it anymore, so why would anybody else have any interest in it? Not the way that's not the, 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 the that's not the reality of the
5: situation.
6: No, and absolutely. And I think another thing that's a characteristic of Yahoo, although Yahoo, is that Yahoo really went on a significant decline. In North America, it still is globally one of the most popular web services and 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 webmail systems. And so, just because it's no longer uh, kind of the the golden child in North America, doesn't mean it's necessarily that case. Uh, that's the case a, a, across the board. Right. But uh, but yeah, even old information. If you wouldn't uh, if you wouldn't just kind of take all those emails, print them out, and leave them on a park bench, you certainly shouldn't be leaving them kind of traipsing around. And and also when you think about if you open a Yahoo account 10 years ago, what was your level of kind of password diligence? Uh, your password simply might have been your dog's name. And, and in fact, you, you might have been able to set up an account with, like, a five-character password, uh, which is absolutely not the case today. So you might have a, a legacy account with a super weak password, and it's very easy for somebody to somebody to guess. So at the very least, log in and, uh, and change that password into something that's uh, – it's got to be easily guessed and also make sure that it's not a password that you've repeated
5: anyplace
0: else. David, some of the things one of the questions that people are asking themselves perhaps now given the parameters of this case as we understand it Russians in the US uh, or in the in the United States as part of the Russian uh, secret service parceling out a number of accounts for Kareem Baratov to break down. That's the story. That's the allegation. So we we hear this kind of information, and we think, well, how could anything that we have possibly be of any interest to a Russian secret service or somebody who's paid to to, uh, hack a specific number of accounts? We just can't afford to have that attitude, can we? We should always just assume someone may be looking at our personal information right now.
6: Well, absolutely. And, and and so just look in the spam folder on your on your email system. And you'll see probably going back in the last month, at least 30 instances of somebody trying to send you a scam phishing email or, or otherwise. And there's that they're not doing that out of the hopes that you're a Russian cabinet minister or that you're some sort of uh, political figure. They're doing that because they're interested in getting access to your accounts, to your bank accounts and, and otherwise. So so while you and I, uh, well, I you never know about the two of us, but while most of the listeners probably aren't of interest to some sort of government actor who's engaged in kind of cyber espionage, every one of us is of interest to kind of petty online thieves for want of a, want of a better term. And in fact, that's probably the, their greatest risk that, uh, that most people have is that sort of identity theft and, and fraud uh, I think in the political intrigue, they're looking for information. For they're looking for intelligence, but they're also looking for blackmail material. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, uh, while you never know, you you might have somebody who's a a bureaucrat. Certainly, I, I grew up in a in a foreign service family, and part of the time we lived in in Romania just after the revolution, and it was pretty clear that that there were attempts being made, kind of all around, in order to just compromise people and and. There's the the, the the Russian word for that that I actually hadn't heard for some time, that has come back into more common usage in connection with the uh, uh, with the allegations about Donald Trump and and his uh, and his affiliates and their and their involvement with the with the Russians. So you know you might be a, a public servant you wouldn't think why would anybody be right. of interest to me, but if they can get into your email box and, and find something embarrassing that can, in fact, be used to compromise. Well,
0: we've, we've learned a lot, and we have to be reminded periodically of what our own responsibility to ourselves is. This case is fascinating. We'll hear a lot more. And we'll talk to you again, David, on this. Thanks for the time today.
6: Oh, it's always my pleasure. You take care, Roy.
0: Bye-bye. David Fraser, McKenna Scooper in uh, Halifax, and the founder of the Canadian Privacy Law Blog.
2: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5, on AM 900 CHML.
0: Aidan Cobang, has been sentenced to 10 years and eight months' imprisonment in Holland for the cyberbullying and the blackmailing of Amanda Todd from British Columbia. Also, 33 other girls and five men. Remember, boy, it seems like yesterday, that we first heard about Amanda taking her own life. And as the story developed, we asked ourselves more and more, who's behind this? Who's behind terrorizing this 15 year old and you look at the Satan Coban well let's just say I don't think he's in for a good time in prison because they don't they don't uh, particularly like individuals like him who are sexual predators of kids and when his prison sentence in Holland is up Canadian police will be there waiting looking to extradite him to Canada because he's to face charges here, and I guess I can say it now, because he hasn't been, well, he's not in court here, but I hope we actually hand out a longer sentence to him than the Dutch did. Carol Todd joins us on the Roy Green Show, Amanda's Mom, and uh, we've talked many times over the years. Carol, thank you for uh, coming on. I, I can only imagine what a, what a week it's been for you, but there has to be some relief at the Dutch court's decision.
7: Thanks for, once again, um, inviting me onto your show Roy. Um, yes, it, I always, I've been describing it as relief and satisfaction in, in that part of this journey, this story. Um, it, it's always, you know what, it, it, it's been a long one because you and I first talked probably back in in 2013 and, and we've been talking about cases like this and Amanda's story and others, right? Um, but it, it just, to me, it, it's something that has moved forward in the case of, you know, cyber crimes and, and cyber crimes against young people.
0: And you've been, uh, you've been so intent on helping young people and, and trying to uh, alert parents and alert kids to what is out there. And and you've you've done that uh, nonstop through Amanda's foundation, uh, through shows that we've had on the air. I remember a young man who was being bullied in British Columbia. You worked very hard on uh, on, on arranging for him to have a, a really great time in Ontario, meet the Blue Jays, and and so thanks for everything that you do. But was there ever a time, uh, Carol, where you you wondered whether the day would come where this individual? Whoever he was going to be initially, we didn't know, and then he fought it, and uh, it's, it's been ongoing for some time now. Was there a time where you doubted that this day would come, where he, this Coban, would actually be sentenced to a significant period of time in prison?
7: Well, when it all started back in 2010, and up to you know hearing about it in April of 2014, when the RCMP released the news that this person had been charged, um, all I was all I could think about was, you know, this happened to Amanda and she was um, bullied online and, and offline by, by peers who victimized her and, and that was all that, that I was thinking about at the time and this just added a another component of the online predatorship of, of others but, you know what, it, it, Amanda's story just started my way of thinking and got me into looking at it in a different way and, and looking at it more, and I realized how um, worldwide and global these these victimizations are, like all over the place. And if we use, my thinking is, by using Amanda's as a, a real-life story to, to push on that awareness and education to... Um, Children, young people, families, and communities—it just goes on and on, right? Then this is what needs to be done, and um, I I have—I have—it's a choice for me, of course, and um, I'm totally 100% okay with being a voice um, as much as I can to to making sure these things just—we can—we can can decrease, we can eliminate, we can get rid of.
3: these
0: situations, right? You know, you 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 said something that is so true that their borders don't matter. These individuals just use the internet, and the internet has no borders. And the predators are ultimately completely evil individuals, and the kids are so vulnerable. So you put together a combination of of uh, of evil and vulnerability, and and inevitably and invariably, they're going to be victims. And so, knowledge, understanding, and and parental um, interjection and also peers just warning you know their friends about what's going on so critically important
7: oh definitely and and the young mind isn't um, mature enough to realize you know situations they think at the moment yeah. but we do have to continue just because that's the way their brains are have developed right are developing we we can't stop and say oh well we're not going to talk about it we have to talk about it just like we continue to talk about drinking and driving and and you know the mad organization and um sexual health and um we have to talk about exploitation and what goes online because technology is all around us and it's not ever going to disappear it's going only, only going to get more advanced and and possibly more complicated for general users so um it, it's 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 a whole there's a whole bunch of things to learn and we we just need to put reminders out there of different areas and guide parents, right? We're guiding parents to what they need to talk to their young people about and why it's so important.
0: Carol, uh, Aidan Coban was convicted uh, of online harassment of 34 girls and 5 men. Have uh, yes. police shared with you whether his approach was generally the same?
7: Um, unfortunately, I can't. about those details because we're still waiting for Amanda's trial Um, what I can share is that you know he had he did have 34 young victims and and possibly you know many more out there Um, and and you have to look at at how he um, victimized those 34 through whatever media outlets have reported it and we can only assume that um, he used similar, similar tactics for them all, and and you know it's sad to say that um, those young people that are still alive um, will probably you know are going through those traumatic events, and, and they will pop up in their in their minds from different you know triggering moments around um, all over the place. So, and their families also. Yeah. So, we can. It, it's just
2: devastating. You're listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from two to five on AM nine hundred. C H M L.
0: You have done, uh, and you continue to do so much for young people to help them avoid the the kinds of traps that were laid for uh, for Amanda by this Aiden individual, Aiden Colbin. Uh, but there was something you wanted to get back to, Carol, before we took the break.
7: Yes, um, it was, you know, in your intro and we talked, you were mentioning um, the process, the process like less than 48 hours ago, he was um, convicted of, you know, 10 years and eight months and he will serve that time. But I understand that an appeal process will occur from his defense team um, based on the technology used. So we'll have to see if that's accepted and how that goes. Um, April 4th, we will wait for another, one, the third extradition ruling, whether he can be brought to Canada. I'm um, not sure if, if Mr. Koban and his team are going to appeal that because um, he doesn't really want to come to Canada for a trial. Um, and he does not have to serve all his time until he comes here. It, it, it can be really confusing.
0: No, no, I understand the Dutch, the Dutch justice system is fairly soft.
7: Right. And so um, what I understand is that if there is an appeal, then as soon as that appeal is over in the courts over there and extradition is approved, then they can start the process of bringing him here as soon as possible after that.
0: Which, uh, which is absolutely necessary and which the RCMP have said that they're going to pursue to, mm-hmm. get, to get him brought to Canada. But back to, again, the, the message that people have to be aware and they have to speak with one another and they have to talk to their kids and get through to their kids. Abbotsford, British Columbia Police, put out a news release about a young boy in Texas. What was the story behind that?
7: Um, I saw the press release and um, some of the articles and there was a... Uh, 11-year-old boy from Texas who was being asked online to send, you know, sexually explicit images, nude pictures. Um, and he, he told his parents, who then went to law enforcement, the police, who then investigated. And it was tracked back to um, a young person in Abbotsford, B.C., um, because they're all minors, nothing can be named. And so, you know what, kudos because that boy talked to his parents about yes. it and told them, and that's a must in all this, that if, if anyone is being extorted online or asked for anything that's inappropriate, they need to, um, if you're a young person, tell an adult. And if you're an adult, you need to go to the police. You need to take screen captures of... Um, what's being asked of you and and I just read today that if it's on Facebook you know you can deactivate your account but save all your things but um, you can't you you shouldn't delete everything because it may be needed for you know evidence down the road so there are there are changes to the system that have occurred we may not see it moving as quickly as we want it to but underneath it all there are changes law enforcement are looking um at you know reports critically and as we know from amanda's case and from this case that came out of abbotsford and, and other cases that i've seen and and talked to um many law enforcement agencies around the world um when they get a case filed they do look at it and the message out there the predators is that everything is trackable right and so unfortunately you know amanda's case is high profile and she has become this poster child of um cyber abuse cyber aggression cyber violence i don't tend to call it cyber bullying um because i think many kids many families many adults think of cyber bullying as you know pure aggression but um, the, the the cyber crimes that can happen using technology are things that we need to discuss and discuss in detail.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'll never mention. I'll never say it's cyberbullying again. <laughs> no, you're absolutely correct because we we tend to use terms that we are familiar with and we're comfortable with, but they don't really apply to the situation. They don't apply in the way that they need to apply in order to get the information spread out. So cyberbullying would have a, the effect of maybe. So having somebody see, yeah, uh, well, okay, bullying. I've heard about this before, but mm-hmm. if you talk about cyber crime and cyber victimization of children, the mm-hmm. way that, that's going on, I imagine there are people listening to us right now. Somebody in a family has experienced it, or a, a young person is experiencing it, and hasn't talked to anybody about it yet.
7: Well, ninety percent of, of all kids aged between the ages of twelve and eighteen um, have some form of device technology device that they're using, whether it be a phone, a tablet, a laptop, and so that's 90%, right? And out of that 90%, they say that um, 50% have have been victims of, of illicit judgment, and illicit, illicit judgment can come out back in the forms of cyber abuse, cyber abuse of behaviors of others, right? And so that's a really high number when you think of it, not just in Canada, But you think of the U.S., you think of, you know, internationally, across the seas. Um, It's happening all over the place. But kids need to know that they need to trust their parents and caring adults around them and and tell someone because you can't solve your problems um, on your own. And then sometimes, like Amanda, she internalized those problems and initially didn't share with any adult. And it turned into, you know her her mental health distresses. Which right. We all know the outcome of that. And so those are the outcomes that we don't want, right?
0: Well we uh, you know we have to remember that predators can be anywhere and any age. And man uh, uh, Carol, in the in the minute or so we have left, what are the first things that parents should look for? What are the first things that adults should look for in behavior of kids who may be being approached online by the kinds of individuals we're talking about, the predators?
7: Well, when we look at our, our kids and we look at the distresses they have, we can see signs and changes of sleep patterns, changes of, of you know, where they're, if they're online, um, are they hiding what they're doing? Like, are they going into their bedrooms? Um, are they not talking about it? And you have to have that open discussion about, you know, hey, what are you? what's happening online these days? What are your friends looking at? Because I just, I just saw an article today that um, one of Mr. Coban's youngest victims was eight years old. And so when parents say in school say, you know, I don't, I don't want any, we don't need to talk to our grade fours and fives about, you know, online safety. Yes, we do. And and we can talk about it in different ways. And being an educator myself, there are ways to talk about respect and kindness and behaviors and, and what you do online or offline um, as early as, as, great you know age four and five you just talk about it in, in different ways and you know you think about all those all those gaming apps that kids find and we think that things like minecraft and animal jam and movie star planet are, are safe but anywhere that you have a, you can have a, a a chat conversation with anyone um you have to know that that anyone could be anyone
0: right Carol, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. Thanks for everything you do for 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 families in this country and beyond the country. You've experienced such a tremendous personal loss, and and yet you're uh, you're out there protecting others and protecting the kids. And a lot of respect Thanks. for you. Amanda uh, Todd right? Yes, it
7: is.
0: We'll talk to you soon, Carol. Thanks for the time today. Okay. All the best. Thanks, Roy. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. So there, there is good news in the sense that this Aiden, this um, Aiden Coban, has got ten years and eight months prison sentence, and the RCMP is waiting for him to come to Canada once his Dutch
2: sentence is over. The Roy Green Show weekends from
3: two to five on AM nine hundred CHML.